Okay, well, this is our final uh, theological anthropology class time. It's our last Bible class of the year as well. So next week, for the, ne the rest of December, in the first week of January, January 3rd, we don't have Bible class as we're on our holiday schedule. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of time to recoup and recover from whatever travels and other things you might have going on in the next couple weeks. I want to give two book recommendations because uh, we weren't able to talk about a lot of things other than just situating our view of humanity and race and ethnicity and authority in the biblical story. So the first one is a little book called How the Nations Rage by Jonathan Lehman. Uh, this book focuses on politics and ideas like justice and how Christians ought to relate to our political system. I, I think that it's really well done. He's read, uh, he's very well read, well studied, but he boils down some pretty complicated ideas about political theology and, and life in our world as Christians, and, and I think does a really good job in it. There are a couple of chapters related to justice in particular that I think are really, really helpful. And we, we hear talk about justice all the time, you know, social justice in particular, but it's sometimes hard to know what people mean when they talk about pursuing justice. Well, this guy talks about, essentially presents a theology of justice and how we ought to relate in terms of just judgments in this world. So that's one book. The, the other book, and, and if you, Jonathan Lehman is connected to Nine Marks, kind of a church in Capitol Hill, or it, on Capitol Hill, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He's been an elder there, and uh, I think is really helpful. The second book is called Enchant or Reenchanting Humanity. It's by a guy named Owen Strahan. He's a professor at Midwestern, where I go to school. And this is just a, a larger biblical anthropology. So there are chapters in it about race in particular, but um, he talks about image of God, depravity, work, sexuality, race and ethnicity, technology, justice, contingency in Christ. So I, I read this. It's pretty, it's not too deep or too hard to wrestle with, but I think it's helpful and informative. All right. Before we jump into our final part here, were, were there any questions you guys had or any things you wanted to chase down from our last five weeks or so? Uh, looking at the beginning of the biblical narrative and situating our ideas about ourselves and others in it. You don't have to have any, and it's early on a Sunday. Well, it's not that early, but um, it is Sunday morning. Okay, well, in that case, um, turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 16, we're going to look at one paragraph in chapter 16 and one in chapter 17 as we move forward and think about authority just very briefly. And then I, for the rest of the time, I want us to observe some ideas from the Gospel of John and from the book of Revelation, uh, and we'll connect that to our humanity and the new humanity that's being made in Christ. All right, Deuteronomy 16 and 17 give us two authority positions that will function in Israel. And I, I don't think that we can say 
Israel's political system should be normative for the world. I, I don't think that we can say the best thing to do would be to adopt the text of scripture is our American system of government or something like that. I, I don't think we have, we're not operating within that covenantal system. And so it's not as if we are Israel. It's not as if America is Israel. Now, there have been problems from the beginning in our country with thinking that America is Israel. Uh, this, this goes all the way back, I think, to the Puritans who talked about this idea of manifest destiny. And, and they talked about discovering and, and coming to this new land, really, in terms of them being Israel, coming to the promised land. And as we look at, uh, in particular, I think, conservative Christian history, in America, Christians have tended to talk about America as God's country, essentially. This is a nation under God. This is God's land, and we're God's people. And they start to draw correlations to Israel and the nation of the United States in a way that I think is really, really unhelpful. It's not biblically founded, and it leads us to problems down the road. Let me point out three things that I think is wrong with this. Number one, when, when people start to say that the United States uh, can claim the promises made to Israel or look at these texts relating to Israel and suggest that we can apply those directly to the United States, they're missing not only the fact that this is taking place in a covenantal context, in particularly a covenantal context that's rooted in Abraham, and then it's brought into being in Israel. And whenever Israel is sort of is becoming prideful, God tells them, I didn't choose you because there's anything good in you. Uh, I chose you because you're the smallest among the nations, and I'm going to make my name great. Well, that's the context for, for texts like, if this people calls out by my name or if they return, I'll heal their land and these sorts of things. And we, we sometimes even in, you know, this week could probably scroll through a Facebook feed and see a meme posted with that verse over an American flag. And there's so, sort of this idea that whatever God has said to Israel in the past can be directly uh, connected to the United States of America. I, I think... Th just based on that covenantal context, if nothing else, that should be shown that that's not the case. There, there may be truths and principles and realities about an individual's relationship to God that, that connect in some way there, but it's not a national promise to the United States of America. And in fact, as, as we'll see, if there is any group that can identify closely with Israel, it's the universal church. And that, that breaks up down national barriers and it removes uh, national identity from the primary place and puts it at best in a secondary place. And I'm not even sure that secondary is right. But at best, Christians, the church can say, if we repent, God is going to visit us with his, his gracious presence. We can't say that if America, you know, passes a particular legislation that then, you know, everything's going to be better. That That's a, a wrong way of looking at it. So number one, we shouldn't think in those terms because there's a covenantal context that Israel is in, that the United States is not in. 
A second reason, which I briefly referred to, is that the primary identity of God's people is in the church. And so when we look at promises that God makes, we often see him using foreign nations to punish Israel and then sometimes to to provide for them. But his promises that relate to his relational presence and his ongoing blessing is to his people. And then it's God's people who bless the nations. Okay, so that's how it worked with Abraham. And then as we're united to Abraham, as Paul says in Galatians, we're Abraham's seed, then the church goes to bless the nations. And we shouldn't get confused to think that it's the nations that ought to bless the church. Now, we hope that that should happen. I I think the reason we have government in part is to continue on the mission of the church and to aid the church in its mission. But we shouldn't start to think that the primary recipient of God's blessing is a particular nation. It's the church, and then the church blesses the nations. Okay, so, so that's reason number two. But then reason number three that I think we should reject this notion that the United States can kind of claim these promises, is the fact that the United States as a nation has nothing to do with with the God of the Bible as a whole. Well, we, we recognize that the United States had founders who some of them were entrenched in a biblical worldview, we could say. They were also highly influenced by these movements um, that we, we now look at and talk about in terms of an enlightenment, where there's, a, there's actually a separation from God. And even in the way that our constitution was framed, it's, um, we were talked about is in relationship to God, but it's in a more deistic sense. And in fact, the way that it's talked about paves the way to um, protect against the establishment of religion, which is good in a lot of ways, but, then it, but that by itself should point out that the United States is not God's country. There, there's been a protection against our country identifying in, in that sort of way. So when we, when we look at these things, and as I look at these texts here, I'm not suggesting that when we read about judges and kings here that we should say, let's convince Americans to, to vote to create Israel's governmental systems or something like that. And I also am saying this to try to caution you against reading texts in the Old Testament and then suggesting that all that we need is for America to do this and then America is going to be better than everyone else because there are Christians in countries across the globe and those are our people. Those are the people that we love, that we're connected to, that we care about. It's not a particular ethnic identification or geographical place. So this this applies even to the nation of Israel, okay? The the modern Israel, I was talking with Steve who has visited Israel, talking about how Palestinian Christians are in a sense persecuted by Israelis. And so we can't say that Israel is God's people. There are God's people living in Palestine who are not ethnic Jews, okay? So we need to reframe the way that we think about these sorts of things. And I think that should um, cultivate in us a kind of humility that both appreciates the blessings God has given us in the, the nation that he's placed us in, 
And it also allows us to operate within that blessed realm with a humility and a realism that says this place is not our home and there are problems with this place. Uh, So we can say, I think, I'm happy to say, America is the best nation on earth. I'm happy to say that because I also know that America is not the best nation on earth. Okay, I'm, I'm happy to look back and say, ah, I loved the early 2000s, uh, but that's not the best decade on earth. And, and we know this in every other realm of life. Each of us should be able to say, I have the best parents in the world. While simultaneously knowing, as we look at other parents across the world, my parents aren't the best parents in the world, okay? It's right for me in a way to have a, a, an idea and to talk that way, but it's not right for me to say that this is actually true, you know, and therefore everyone else's parents in the world are not the best parents in the world. And I think we can say our country is, you know, the United States is the best country in the world, but really it's not the best country in the world. And we, you know, it's, it would be right for someone in Britain to say, you know, Britain's the best country in the world. You know, we, we shouldn't be mad about those sorts of things. There's this good sense of we're, we're operating in a larger system. We have neighbors in a community that we want to thrive. And so we can speak positively in that way. Uh, so I was listening to a theologian in, in Britain kind of critiquing America's political system and saying, ah, it's so great that we have a monarch, you know, this, this kind of revised monarchy, and that's the best thing on earth. Kudos. You know, that's great. But, but we need to be able to both affirm good things and the blessings we have, but we also have to do that with the kind of humility that says, um, it's not all about us. We're not the best. And in fact, our people, most of them don't even live in America. Most of our people are Asian or uh, Southern American and, or Latin American. And, and that's, that's who we have to find ourselves as, people who are connected by virtue of the redeeming work of Christ. All of that is the preface for looking at these two things. I think it'll help us down the road. So Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, God institutes judges or he directs uh, Israel and Moses to appoint judges. So to appoint judges and officials, Okay, so you kind of have tiers of government, um, but judges and officials for your tribes in all your towns, the Lord your God has given you. And this is what I want you to pay attention to. They are to judge the people with righteous judgment. Do not deny justice or show partiality to anyone. And I, th- I think the principle here in the mode of operating is the mode of operating that we should all take on that we should seek to exercise and demonstrate just judgment, right judgment, and, and that we should not deny justice to anybody. And in this way, we can affirm the impulse of the, the culture right now to seek justice. I think we have to work to define that and then work to figure out what a just judgment is. You know, some will say that something is a just judgment or this is justice. This is a right judgment, but you, you didn't get the right part. You know, there's a moral, a morality that we have to begin with. So we have to start with right before we get to justice. You have to start with just before we get to justice. And, and that's going to put us at odds with some of the things that we'll see in, in our culture. 
Um, so for instance, someone might say that a, a woman has a right to her body that includes abortions. Well, we're going to say that you're partly on and that you were recognizing women are people with rights, but that's not a right right. That's not a true right. That's not a just right. So we want to be people who do not deny justice or show partiality to anyone. And, and this, I think, is a better terminology or a better way of talking about problems of racism or ethnic disharmony or prejudice. I think partiality and prejudice are terms that speak with much more cogency to reality and it's something that we can actually deal with. It's really challenging to say uh, or to measure racism in any way. It's a lot easier to talk in terms of prejudice and partiality. And where in our governmental systems we, we sense partiality or prejudice, then I think we, we are right to try to correct those things. And it should be no surprise that as unjust humans in our, it, with our natural bent and in a nation whose laws are made up by people who don't care about God, we shouldn't be surprised that we find a lack of justice, that we find partiality and that we find prejudice in our systems. And in that way, we can confirm that we, could, we, might, we may find systemic prejudice or systemic partiality. And, and we want to root that out and we want to promote the uh, dignity of every person. We want to promote justice and we want to promote what's right. Now, this raises questions of equality. Okay, what is equality? Are we, lo are we trying to set up an equality of opportunity or are we trying to set up an equality of outcome? And I hope you see the difference between these two things. Um, and, and these are challenging and we can't wade into this too far. I, I think that it's not helpful for us to say we're going to pursue an equality of outcome because we start to measure different, we, we only then are operating with a set of metrics for measuring outcome. And I don't think it does justice to the way that the Bible speaks about um, work and ethic and, um, and our, own, our own responsibility. Equality of opportunity, I don't think that we can hold on to as a gospel truth either because God doesn't deal with people in those ways. God doesn't deal with people in terms of an equality of prospect. You know, we, we don't all have the, an equal amount of good things or bad things in front of us. And while, so, so I think we have to definitely um, be cautious about this equality of outcome, but even this equality of opportunity, I don't know that we can legislate that sort of thing totally. Be, and um, I think of this, this maybe helps us think in terms of officials and judges who are able to operate on this more personal level and understand these things better. But these are, these are two big issues. And so when people talk about equality, you have to start pushing to understand what do you mean by equality? And I think Christian, thankfully there are Christian thinkers who are working on this sort of thing, but, but this is complicated and I'm not quite ready to suggest that I have an answer for how we should think about either outcome or opportunity. Um, but I, I think that we need to uh, be slow to speak on these issues and to take my own advice. I think I'm going to stop there. 
but these are issues that we just have to wrestle with and recognize people are operating with different different definitions when they talk about equality. And, and depending on which one we presuppose, both about justice and equality, when we read the Bible, we can start reading our own presuppositions and our own definitions into those terms. And I'm, I just think we need to keep dwelling in the biblical story and try to pick up as much as we can the nuances of those ideas as we see God demonstrate justice and pursue these, these ideas. And, um, and that includes studying the, this Old Testament law to understand how these things got worked out in that day. Yeah, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say something unpopular, and that is that I don't think that dignity, and even dignity rooted in the divine image in, in God, necessitates equality either of outcome or of opportunity. And so I want to affirm human dignity as rooted in God in a dignity that no one can take away, but I don't want to say that that means, therefore, that there ought to be either equality of opportunity or outcome in every area of life. We, we don't see God, I think, making this happen. Um, we, we see younger brothers who are blessed above the older brothers. We see all sorts of inequalities. Um, we see individuals who worked all day long in parables and then others who are hired in the last hour, and they, they are paid the same, and we might talk about equality there, but there's not equality in terms of the labor. You know, so this idea of dignity and equality, I think sometimes they get glued together when, when they shouldn't be. Um, Okay, so you're talking in terms of the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, I think I agree with you, though I also think that it, very strangely in the way that our country's documents are written, those things are both assumed and then uh, the, the people who are assuming them are legislatively separated from the God who gives them. And so it's challenging to know how to work these things out. You know, that, that is um, liberalism in a way. And uh, I, don't, I don't have any answers there. I just know that um, I'm, I'm thankful for those things and that they're really good things. But there are also philosophical systems that those are founded on that uh, we want to cautious, be cautious to wholeheartedly embrace or look to as our rationale for something. But um, yeah, this, this is, I, I uh, study the Bible, not politics. And so this is a bit outside of my comfort zone, but I just want to impress upon you that we should probably um, always keep in mind that there were philosophical streams that the founding fathers stood on in addition to the Bible, that were sometimes contrary to the Bible in, in the teaching of the Bible about man and God and uh, the world. Um, so so we, we just, we want to be careful there. Those guys could write those things and enslave other people. And so they, they needed something different than their deism. Um, they, they could write those things and tar and feather people and, and treat them without dignity. 
they they could write those things and soldiers fighting wars could rape and pillage towns i i just think we we have to look at that and recognize that um that that's not our greatest hope and you know that we all we all know that but i think we have to affirm that so when there are unbelievers who somehow by god's common grace and really just because we're always good at critiquing people other than ourselves, probably look at those guys and point out their flaws. We need to say, yeah, they, they were wrong there. And I'm going to note that. And I'm going to do so humbly because I think people will look at me and in things that are just blatantly wrong. I did without a second thought about it. Um, you know, which is why we've, we've got guys like Jonathan Edwards, these theologians who defended the rights of slaveholders. We have the Southern Baptist Convention that was really started to, um, to protect the right of slaveholding missionaries. We, ju- we just have so many of these convoluted ways of holding on to biblical truth that um, it's a grace that some of those things have been departed from, but I think we just have to be more realistic in, in our evaluation of, of people. The, the next authoritative position that's talked about in Deuteronomy is in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 14. I want to read this description of a king, okay? When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession, it, take possession of it, live in it, and say, and we should just pause there and note that by taking possession of it, they're destroying com- complete towns, killing everyone in it. And this is not an easy thing to wrestle with. I think that one way that helps us is understanding that God is using Israel as his bringers of justice. He, they, they are executing the sword of God's justice from the very beginning, we understand that these people, have been, God has dealt mercifully with them with not wiping them out right away. And he has given them time to repent. But all they've done is fill up their iniquity and then they're being driven out of the land and, and executed in, in these tough ways. Um, it, this is hard. I don't want to minimize the challenges of this when we start to visualize this and think about this. But I also want to point us to texts of scripture where the wickedness that deserves God's wrath is just so gross and graphic that it's challenging to talk about. There aren't kids in this room, so I'll reference one. And, th- and that is the one that we read of in Judges. In e- this is even the nation of Israel that participates in this, where there's this man with his concubine who is seeking refuge in a home, and every person from the city comes to beat down the doors of this house to, to rape this guy. And then he sends out his concubine to be raped by them. She's raped all night long. She, in the morning, she's laying at the, the door and he, she doesn't respond to him. He just tells her, get up and get on, your, on the horse. Well, he throws her on the horse and she dies. And then he cuts her body into 12 pieces and sends it across the nation of Israel. These are the sort of things that are receiving the just judgment of God as nations are being removed from the land. And as this land is, in a sense, being cleansed, as God's temple and his presence will dwell here. 
So the, I, I recognize, and for skeptics of the Bible, that is a sticking point when, when you talk about the nation of Israel wiping out lands. But there is representative in that an idea of this cosmic warfare between the gods where the true God is disposing of what are conceived of as territorial gods. And then there's also just judgment. When he says pursue justice and don't show partiality, this is sometimes what it looks like. And, and I think that we have to wrestle with that. I think there are other things to think about there, but I just want to take note of that and not pass over it. Um, there, these things are challenging. I will set a king, uh, you know, when you live in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him. He is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction, and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from this command to the right or the left, and he and his sons will continue reigning for many years in Israel. So even the highest authority in the land, if you want to look at it this way, is subject to God's authority and his greatest responsibility is actually to be a visible representation of the law of God. He is supposed to be an embodiment of the law to demonstrate the wisdom of God and the fear of God to the nation. And this is how just judgments will be rendered. This is how a nation will flourish. It's through the embodiment of God's justice and law and, and the outworking of that in the land, which, you know... None of the kings did. We can't identify a single one that did this. And, uh, and that's troubling. And it should remind us that even the best of political rulers are going to fail. I mean, we talk about David as the greatest king of Israel. David was a murderer and an adulterer, and he collected wealth for himself. This, th th yeah, this was not the guy that we, we are looking for. And so we should just recognize, even in, in Israel, this didn't come to fruition, where there were prophets that spoke clearly, where the law of God was given directly in that covenant. And so as we look at our political leaders outside of the covenant, um, we, we don't expect much better. And that doesn't mean that we don't pursue and hold those leaders to a standard of morality. We, we don't look at them and say, this is fine. Instead, our response is that we're not finding our hope in them. I think it's right for us, especially in our political system, to call on our leaders to exercise righteous and justice and, and morality. And when they don't do that, we shouldn't allow a, a party line to allow us to excuse their wrong behavior. And I think we can say that about many of our politicians right now. But what it should do is remind us that our hope is not in this earthly ruler. 
uh, it, it, it's just not going to work. And when we are trying, when we do have influence to set people into positions of power, I think we ought to seek out people who are not looking to gather wealth for themselves. We are to seek out people who are seeking to um, exercise just judgments and in morality. Uh, that's limited. And because it's limited, our hope in that and our care about that ought to be limited. Uh, I, I talked about when Paul, the, the election was coming up, it's not a sacrament to vote. You know, it's not the Lord's Supper. There are far more important things that we do. So we exercise the influence that we have, and then we move on. Because the greatest influence that we have is going to be local in, in our families and in our community as we live out God's wisdom and his instructions, where we, as priest kings of God, embody the Torah. And by that, I just mean God's instructions for his people. That's where we start to bring blessings to the nations. And we, we need to think locally, I think, wherever our feet are planted. That's what we should care about most. So I would encourage you, um, if, if you're finding yourself over and over again, turning to the newspaper and getting angry or frustrated or feeling despair, um, if, if you're finding that the most things that you talk about with people when you're, when you're with a group of people, whether it's your family or friends or online, and the major thing, the primary thing you talk about is American politics or, or geopolitical things, I would just encourage you to stop that and instead to talk with people about the, the blessings that God has shown you in your life and what you're learning from the scriptures. And then move beyond that. If you want to see positive goods in the world, start doing good in the world. Um, and instead of worrying about the fact that an immigrant may be living off of your social security money, why, why don't you work hard and show love to that immigrant? You know, we are the ones who are called to care for those who are among us. We're the ones who are called to care for the, the poor. And I think Christians for a while were good about that. That's why a lot of hospitals are founded by Christian organizations. But I think slowly the church has started to put their hope in the government. And I think that's a challenge for us as a church to ask, how are we going to minister to the poor in our area? How are we going to minister to the disadvantaged? And while the cynical side of me wants to say, well, I'm seeing taxes come out of my paycheck, and so I can, you know, allow the government to appropriate that responsibility. I don't think that's the case. Um, I think the case is that there's a, we have Christ who shows this, and then we have a long tradition of Christians who jump in to care for, for people who are disadvantaged, whether those are abandoned infants or um, poor people who are injured, laying on the road, or, or runaway slaves, Christians care about other people. And, and we ought to do that from ourselves and not convince ourselves that because we've paid our taxes that, that now we're doing good in this world. Um, and, and if we can think that way, if we can think of the good that we're doing to care for our common humanity in terms of actual acts that we're doing, rather than taxes coming out of our paychecks, then when our government is even more politically liberal and your taxes are also funding all sorts of things that you're morally opposed to, you're not going to be the guy who says, I am going to protest taxes the rest of my life. You're going to be the guy who says, 
the government is doing a lot of things that I don't like. They're pursuing a lot of things that I don't think are justice or right kind of equality, but I am going to where I am and then in my church community have the greatest politic, the greatest polis, the city of God that I'm abiding in and drawing others into, and that's my primary concern. Uh, we're in a unique spot where we get to vote, vote, do all of those things. That's great, but don't rest your hope there and and don't let governmental action be an excuse to neglect your responsibility or be the reason for your anger and your bitterness, okay? Sure, yeah, yeah. And I think what, whoever you voted for, you might look at these contested things as a challenge. Uh, whichever side of, you know, whichever guy out of, or woman, I guess, that you voted for. Um, but but uh, we, we want truth. We want righteousness. If there was, you know, tampering with elections, we hope that that's called out because we want to live in a fair and equitable system. And if it's proven that it's not there, then we don't want to run amok with conspiracy. We, we just... We, we care about truth and righteousness and justice. And so we hope that that is um, displayed wherever it needs to be found. And uh, I think you're right. We, we don't make our life about that. Um, let, let me end here. We just have a couple of minutes left. If you turn to Revelation 5, we're skipping the John's gospel that I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, but in John's gospel, over and over again, there's this idea that your ethnic identity is not your primary identity because God is creating a new humanity. Um, so I think there's something called intersectionality that talks about these different identities that overlap. And sometimes um, I, I think that it's very often wrongly used. Um, but it can be helpful as we recognize people are in mul multiple spots. But Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, we use intersectionality there in a way. Well, she was a woman and she was a Samaritan. You know, we talk about these sorts of things. But Jesus's response to her is to minimize ethnic distinction and to emphasize the God who is uniting people to him and bringing worship from across the world in spirit and in truth. So it doesn't matter if you're connected to Jerusalem or any other mountain, Mount Gerizim for the Samaritan woman. But in fact, there's a new humanity being made who are God's people. And those are the people who we find our identity in. Now, we've already discussed as we talk about unbelievers, they're made in the image of God. So we treat them with that dignity. But there is also a sense as we look at our primary identities where our primary identity isn't just our original creation in the image of God, but our, our being remade to be conformed to the image of Christ that forms our primary identity. Therefore, as we connect with individuals, it is going to be Christians with whom we find the most affinities. Uh, and so we should be able to say, if, if you voted Democrat, you should be able to say that regardless of what that Democrat, you know, if they're not a Christian, we, we might agree on these certain points, but I'm going to have more in common with a Palestinian Christian who hates democracy, perhaps, than I will with a Republican or a Democrat in the United States who's pursuing the kind of democracy that I like. That, that's what we need to come to. Uh, and that's what's pictured in Revelation 5. I just want to read verses 8, um, 8, and 9 and 10. 
When he took the scroll, all four living creatures and 24 elders fell before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people by your, for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is God's work in the world. And if you find within yourselves prejudices that, that make you look at people who are different than you, whether that's in terms of gender or skin color or economic status or anything else, if you're looking at other people in terms of prejudice, you're being very unlike Jesus who was slaughtered so that he could redeem and purchase these people for God by his blood. He gave of his very self for, for people who would fit into every one of these categories. And I think that we need to then orient our lives in a way that is slaying the, slaughtering the prejudice that's within us wherever we come across it and being open to people pushing us on, on blind spots that we have here, but then to have this vision, this enchanted vision of every tribe and language and people and nation being united together before God and finding in those people our, our greatest affinity and connection. So, so when, we, when someone asks, who are your people? You know, you're not going to say, uh, Democrats or Republicans are my people. You're not going to say, uh, white males are my people or, you know, black women are my people or, or anything else. Yeah, the, the United States are not my people. My people are from every tribe and language and people and nation, and I know who they are because they're marked by the name of Christ. That, those are my people. And I think if we can start speaking in these terms, then everyone who is marked that way, we, we love and welcome and embrace. And those who aren't marked that way, we welcome and call them in to be marked that way. Um, and, and so regardless of whether they're Christians or not, we show them this love and compassion that is emulated by, or that we look to Christ to emulate. Okay, we're, we're at the end here. Um, so I'll pray. Uh, thanks for working through this theological anthropology. It was much, much too short and too scattered, but I hope that it presented it. I, I hope I wanted to present it in a way that was rooted in the biblical narrative instead of just in systematic categories. If you want that, you can look at this book, Reenchanting Humanity. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. We pray that you would rebuke us and correct us where we do show prejudice and partiality and where we fail to pursue justice. Would you give us discernment and wisdom? And most of all, would you allow us to find our greatest identity in Christ and welcome others to participate in that identity as well? And in this age of of identity politics, may, may we find that greatest identity in no category that's offered to us other than, than in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.